Lord willing, we'll finish Hosea tonight. So find chapters 13 and 14, looking at death, judgment, and the future. Uh, chapter 13 will once again uh, capitalize on the themes of judgment and discipline. But chapter 14 will capitalize on the theme of a future and a hope. So the book will end on a very positive note. Look at chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled and their heart was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is kept in store. The pains of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. And see if I could adjust this a little bit. Is that better? No, that's louder. How about that? That'll be better right there. Okay? And see if I could adjust it from here. I thought I could. Uh, in Edward Gibbon's book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, Gibbon cites several reasons why he believes the Roman Empire collapsed. Now, two factors apply tonight as we look at the last two chapters in the book of Hosea. First, Gibbon speaks of the waning virtues of the Roman Empire 
how virtues were replaced by vice. He says the Romans became more and more corrupt as they became wealthier and as they became more powerful in the world. So that's one of the reasons, he says, they collapsed. Corruption from within. The second reason he cites is that there developed poor leaders to lead the empire. They gradually went from one bad leader to the next. Now, while not everybody accepts wholeheartedly all of Gibbon's reasons in his six-volume set, I think we can easily see the influence of these two just mentioned. Inner corruption in the nation and poor leadership. Uh, we can easily see that as we study through Hosea. Uh, now, what's said about the Roman Empire, we could conclude, could definitely have been said also about Israel. Now, I want to reference once again Jeremiah chapter 2. Turn back to Jeremiah chapter 2 because it's sort of a commentary on what we read here in Hosea. And it kind of sums up the problem. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, he says there, beginning in verse 2, about halfway through verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore I shall contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and Seir, send to Kedar, and examine with care, See if there's ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What's God saying to the people through Jeremiah? They started out good, didn't they? They were like a bride to the Lord in the wilderness. A newly married bride. The devotion between husband and wife that was strong and fresh. But something happened along the way. And they departed from their faith in God. They forgot God. They became corrupt. And that's the same thing Hosea is saying here, the identical thing. Uh, they adopted the morals of the peoples around them. 
And let me remind you as well that after the nation split in two, becoming Israel and Judah, Israel did not have a single good king, not one. Now folks, think about that. They had 20 kings, 20 kings in the northern kingdom, and not a single one of them was good. Not a single one of them was pleasing to the Lord. They were all bad. They were all evil. Think about that. Not one good leader in the northern kingdom. And so bad leadership. And the people likewise became corrupt. You think things like this have any application to us today and to nations today? I think so. I think so. First of all, I want you to see with me tonight the godly influence of days gone by. The godly influence of days gone by. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. Hosea mentions that at one time when Israel was right with the Lord, she spoke. Now remember, Ephraim is synonymous for who? For Israel, the northern kingdom. At one time, when Israel was right with the Lord, she spoke and the people trembled. Now, the NIV specifies that people trembled. It could be that Israel herself trembled before the Lord. But people also, in general, they trembled. Why? Because they were, they were respecting who Israel was. They were respecting what God had done in them. And so what was said was respected. They trembled before the Lord, he said. And so what's being noted here is that when people are right with God, when leaders are right with God, there is a comfort and there is a respect that is bred. And everybody benefits. Now let me apply this to Christians today. Jesus said we are the salt of the earth and we are the light of the world. When Christians live as Christians, even if we are opposed, hopefully people will be able to respect us. But what happens if they see us living no differently than the world? There's not going to be respect, is there? There's not going to be trembling, so to speak. I'm sure you know this, but up until about 2000 or 2008, politicians courted the evangelical vote in America. Everybody running for the highest office in the land wanted to have the support of the church. There was respect for what the church could bring to the table. Think back even further. Go back 40, 50, 60 years. It was the kiss of death to have the church against you if you were a politician. But as the church has become irrelevant for the most part in America, some of which we've done to ourselves by being too much like the world, it's said that today politicians don't go after our vote as much. The church votes like the world and the church lives like the world. There's no trembling, so to speak. The church doesn't engender the same amount of respect. Likewise, in recent years, studies have shown that the pastor has gone from the most respected person in the community to way down the list. I looked this afternoon at a 
2022 study done by Zeti, and it listed the top 20 most respected professions in the community. You know where the clergy was? Number 16. 16 out of 20. Garbage collectors were higher on the list. Seriously. Even lawyers and professional athletes scored higher. Now, what does all that say about changing attitudes in society? No rational person can deny that the church doesn't hold the same sway in America that it once did. Now, one of the obvious reasons is that faith has dropped so low in society. You know, it used to be far more rare to find a family on Sunday who wasn't in church. Today, it's rare to find a family who is in church. And you know, somebody made the comment last week about revivals. I remember when my mother-in-law, she died in 2012. She's 87 at the time. She was married to a pastor. She was talking to Connie and me one time about early on in her husband's ministry in the towns he pastored in. You could put up a sign on the front lawn of, of, the, of the church, revival next week. And everybody in the community came. She said the Presbyterians came, the Methodists came, they all came. And we had a glorious revival together. And then when those churches would put signs in their front yards uh, promoting revivals, we all went to theirs. Everybody went. And even the lost would go to hear the gospel and get saved. Put a sign on the front yard of the church today announcing revival. And I can tell you right now, nobody, probably not a single person in the community would be drawn in by that sign. As a comment last week, you have a revival in church and even your church leaders don't show up other than on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. I'm serious. Changing attitudes. A huge change has taken place spiritually in the nation. And that's one reason for our drop in standing as Christians. But another reason for the drop in standing of Christians and pastors alike may be some of the things that we've done ourselves to bring it on ourselves. At any rate, I, I want you to see tonight that all of this is nothing new. God is saying here in Hosea 13 that this is how it was for them way back then. So again, it's not new for us today. This is what was going on there. There was a day, he's saying as he opens up verse 1, when things were good, when there was respect. But he's saying that day is long gone. And what has happened, he writes, is that they fell into sin. They loved sin too much. And time it was said and done, they were encouraging others to sin. It's like Paul says in Romans chapter 1. In verses 18 and following, what happens when a society suppresses the truth of God and goes its own way and God lets them, God turns them over to go their own way and he lists all those vices that people in society get caught up in, and he ends the chapter by saying they not only do those things, but they heartily endorse those who join in with them. Folks, this is not where things are going to be left tonight, however, and we'll get there. Uh, 
But this isn't even how things are going to be left at this point, that the people are simply thumbing their noses at God. He's going to go on in just a minute to say, you know what? God is going to have the last word. God is not going to be mocked. Sin is sweet for a season, as the Bible says, but that season comes to an end. And the sweetness of sin is going to change into a bitterness of your soul that will be beyond anything you could have imagined. That's what he's telling them they're going to experience. Second thing I want you to see tonight, the breaking of the first commandment with coming judgment. The breaking of the first commandment. He says at the end of verse 1, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. Oh. Thank you. Where was I? It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. What's he talking about here? How they have broken the first commandment out of the Ten Commandments and how it's going to bring judgment. Ignoring God's watch care and what he has done for them, they've done the most horrendous thing of all. They have turned to idols. Uh, Turn back to uh, Exodus 20, if you would please. Exodus 20. Here's where you find the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, the beginning of the chapter, God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Look at what he goes on to say there. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. They are breaking the very first commandment. And they've been doing this since the days of Jeroboam. Again, I want to remind you of what Jeroboam did. When Rehoboam was the king, and the people asked Rehoboam to go easier on on taxes, and he sought the advice of advisors, and the young advisor said, no, be harder on the people than your dad Solomon was. And he went with the advice of those advisors. And so Jeroboam led the people in revolt against Rehoboam. He led the people in revolt and led the ten tribes of Israel to split off from the two tribes of the southern kingdom. And so Israel became two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel, or Ephraim, as it's called in Hosea, and the southern kingdom, or Judah, made up of two tribes. And you remember what Jeroboam did when he, when he led them to divide the nation? Except we're worshiping. 
You what? Separated the type of worship and locations of worship. Yeah, when he, when he led the 12 tribes to the north to form their, their own people, their own kingdom, he set up, of all things, golden calves at Dan and at Bethel. Dan was in the northernmost part of the northern kingdom. Bethel was in the southernmost part of the northern <coughs> kingdom. And so what he's trying to do is make it to where it'll be convenient for anybody among the ten tribes in the north, it'll be convenient for them to go to one of these altars of these golden calves. He's trying to make it convenient. First of all, it's disobedience because he's setting up idols to be worshipped, golden calves. And then by setting up these two places on each end of the northern kingdom, he's making it convenient so the people could go there. And as they would go there, look at what he says here in chapter uh, 13, verse 2, the end of verse 2. As they're offering the, even their human sacrifices. Remember, human sacrifices are what the Canaanites around them offered. A lot of times they would burn their children or they would offer their children to false gods. And as they're doing that, offering human sacrifices, what are they doing with these golden calves that they're worshiping? They're kissing them. Devotion. Folks, this is stupidity beyond belief. Stupidity beyond belief. It's just dumbfounding to even think about what they're doing. And the people follow Jeroboam's advice in this. But before we're too hard on them, think of the way we devote ourselves to whatever our idols today might be. You know? A man will sit out in 20 degree weather for five hours in a stadium on Sunday when he knows in his heart he ought to be in church with his family. Think of the money we pour into whatever's important with us. So folks, don't kid yourself into thinking that idolatry was just a thing of the past. It's a thing of the present too. We have our own idols today. They may be more sophisticated but we still have our idols nonetheless today. We break the first commandment too, just like they did. Well, the third thing I want you to see about this, coming judgment. Coming judgment. Look at what he begins saying in verse 3. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist. They shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes early away, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the, la uh, from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me. And besides me there is no other or no Savior. What's God telling them here? They're not going to have the last word, are they? God's going to have the last word. He says they'll be like the morning cloud or morning mist or like chaff or like smoke. What are all three of those images symbolizing? They're temporary. They're about to fade away. They don't realize it. 
You go out in the morning, morning fog, it soon lifts. On the threshing floors they had, when they would beat the grain and break the chaff off, the chaff just being the thin skin on the outside of the grain, it would fly up in the air, and the air would carry it away. Smoke from a chimney, you know, you watch it go up a little ways, and then what happens? It kind of dissipates, it goes away. And that's what he saying's about to happen to them. What God's saying to them is they're done as a nation. Israel, as they know it, is about to be gone. And what God's going to do to ensure this, he's going to send the Assyrians in. And what puzzles God so much is what he's been to them. Again, verse 4, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. God is the one who called them out of Egypt, who led them in the wilderness, who provided for them in the wilderness, who took care of them. Gave them the law and the prophets. Gave them leaders. Led them into the promised land. Helped them defeat their enemies. It was God who had done all that. And now he says, they've forgotten me. They've forgotten me and they've not heeded my calls to come back to me. And so he says, you know, they've done this so much, their time's up. Their time's up. It's going to be over for them. Now, what's interesting is the images that Hosea uses next to describe what will happen. Judgment is described here as God being like a lion against them or a leopard or a mama bear or somebody gets between the mama bear and her cubs. There in verse 7, he says, So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breasts, and there I will devour them like a lion, as a, as a wild beast would rip them open. A lion, a leopard, a bear. Does that ring a bell? With anybody? Daniel chapter 7. The lion was what kingdom? The Babylonians. The bear was who? The Medo-Persians. The leopard was who? Greece. Daniel was speaking in Daniel 7 of Gentile nations that will come into power and defeat Israel. Now, Daniel and Hosea's order of the animals is different as Daniel is speaking of these animals and how each one represents a nation that's going to come to power and he gives the chronological order. Hosea's just listing them out without pertaining to any order necessarily. But the point is the same. Hosea, just like Daniel, is saying judgment is coming, destruction is coming. 
And my point is, maybe it's not a coincidence that Daniel and Hosea speak of the same animals. Because each animal, again, describes what? A nation that is going to be used in the hands of God to judge his own people. In other words, God judges his people and he may use other nations to do it. God can use anything he wants to judge his people. Make no mistake about it. God can use anything he wants. But nonetheless, who is it doing the judging? It's God. It's God the one doing the judging. He may raise up these nations against Israel and Judah to judge them, but they're only able to do it because God has raised them up. Those other nations and leaders, in other words, are instruments in the hand of God. You know, it's like Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11. Some of their members have gotten sick and some have even died because of the way they were treating the Lord's table with contempt. God used sickness and God used death. But it was God doing the judging. He can use sickness. He can use death. He can use the Assyrians. He can use the Babylonians. He can use the Greeks. He can use the Romans. But it's God doing the, ju the judging. Folks, God's arsenal is not empty. It's not bare. He has all kinds of weapons that he can use. All kinds of weapons. And in their case, he's going to use these other nations. And as verses 9 to 13 points out, there is no one who will be able to help. He says, he destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? They're not going to be able to help. God gave them a king. Who did God give them? Saul. Saul was such a disappointment. What did God do with Saul? He took him away. He gave Saul. He took him away. God is the one who has given them their leaders, but now no leader will be able to help them. He's seen here nothing that they have trusted in to try to help them is going to be able to help them. No leader, no idol, no golden calf, no other nation, nothing is going to be able to help them. You know, the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It goes on to say our God is a consuming fire. And they're about to find that out. Instead of their sin being washed away, instead their sin is being stored up for a day of wrath. Folks, imagine that. What if all of your sin, instead of being forgiven and washed away, what if all of your sin was being stored up to be a future witness against you? That's the image here. And all of their sins being stored up against them will reveal what? 
it will reveal that God's judgment is just. Nobody will be able to say, God, you're not being fair. Their own sin is being stored up against them for the day of judgment. The wages of sin is death. It's true for individuals and nations. I want to read something to you from George, uh, James Montgomery Boyce. James Montgomery Boyce. Now, bear with me a minute. It, it's kind of a lengthy passage here that I'm quoting from. Uh, but in his commentary on Hosea, James Boyce writes about how nations die. How nations die. Now, listen to this. This pattern of biblical teaching was in mind as Hosea began to write this section of his prophecy. For the death of the nation described in these verses closely parallels the death of our first parents. How do nations die? The answer is that they die in spirit first. Next, they die in soul. Eventually, the body of the nation also dies and vanishes. This needs to be looked at in greater detail, however. So we ask first, how does a nation die in spirit? A nation dies in spirit when it forgets God and begins to worship that which is not God. Hosea describes this in the case of Israel by saying, he became guilty of Baal worship and died. In more recent times, the worship of Baal has been replaced by say, worship of the race, as in the case of Nazi Germany, or material prosperity, as is happening in most Western nations. When we talk about the death of a nation's spirit, we do not mean there has ever been a nation on the face of the earth, including Israel, in which every individual was regenerate. No nation has ever had a total awareness of God involving every one of its citizens. Nevertheless, there is such a thing as God consciousness in a nation. And it has sometimes been the case, particularly at the birth of a nation or at some period of special religious awakening, that many people have been aware of God and have been so anxious to serve Him that they have impressed true spiritual principles and standards on their corporate life. This was true in the United States of America. Not all of our founding fathers were Christians. On the contrary, many of them were just mere deists. Some probably believed almost nothing biblical. But these views were not formative for the nation and did not dominate its first organization. In those days, people who did not believe the principles of the Christian revelation did not express their disbelief or fight for their secular outlook as people do today. Consequently, a certain God consciousness was present and expressed. Prayer became a part of the national life. In God we trust became a genuine slogan. In the schools, the Bible was read and taught by thousands. Unfortunately, though, that ended. The first step in a nation's death takes place when its God consciousness dissipates or worse yet is deliberately removed. 
We cannot speak of other nations at this point. We can speak only of ourselves. But we can say that this is precisely what has happened in America. In our country, particularly in recent years, there has been a deliberate attempt to remove any kind of overt dependence on God from national life. Prayer and Bible reading have been removed from the schools. Public figures have become afraid of identifying policies with Christian principles. Trust in weapons or diplomacy has replaced dependence on God. Second, the soul of a nation dies. This means that the national character deteriorates. We see this in the lowering moral climate of our citizens. The accelerated corruption of businesses, the breakup of families, materialism, the increase in crime. We also see it at the national level in the failure of government to keep faith with its people and those of other nations. One example of how governments break faith with their people is by permitting inflation, particularly on an epic scale, which happens in periods of decline. In the days of their greatest vitality and earning power, People save money to see them through their old age. The money they lay aside is worth something when they save it. But as the years go by, the value of their dollars is deflated so that the money is actually worth much less when they come to use it. In 10 years, figuring from a base year of 67, this is uh, his writing here dated. He wrote it, I think, in the 70s. Inflation in the United States has topped 100% meaning that a dollar saved in 67 was worth less than 50 cents in 77. Therefore, the working, saving people of America were half as well off as they thought they would be and have a right to be. Governments break faith with the people of other nations when they fail to honor treaties or trade agreements. The United States did this when it broke treaties with Taiwan. Why? Because mainline China demanded it as a condition for establishing diplomatic relations with us, and it seemed to our financial and political advantage to have such new relations. Hosea talks about this stage of Israel's decline in verse 2, saying, Now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of these people they offer human sacrifice and kiss the calf idols. Hosea's point is that although Israel is spiritually dead, she nevertheless goes on sinning. She is a walking, sinning corpse. Is what Paul says of the former life of Christians at Ephesus. They were dead in transgressions and sins. Nevertheless, they sinned following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. At last, the body of the nation dies, but by degrees. To use the analogy of a body, it is as if one organ after another fails to function properly, and the body as a whole gradually sinks down until it collapses utterly. <coughs> Nations seldom die cataclysmically by sudden and total overthrow at the hands of an enemy. They break down bit by bit. The police cease to be effective. The courts become technical battlegrounds and so cease to perform their proper functioning 
of punishing the guilty and exonerating the innocent. Politicians become no longer worthy of the trust committed to them. Schools cease to educate. Workers cease to work. Managers cease managing. Eventually, the whole thing caves in. The country becomes a third or fourth-rate power, and at last, the nation is taken over or is dominated by another country whose star is rising. This is what Hosea refers to in verse 3. He has spoken of the death of the spirit of the nation which is past. He has spoken of the present moral decline and the death of the soul. Now he looks to the future and sees the eventual disappearance of the body. Therefore they will be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping through a window. Mist, dew, chaff, smoke. It's hard to think of images better calculated to express how light, weak, and empty the nation had become. It's difficult to picture more graphically how she was to vanish at the first ray of heat or breath of air. Folks, that's powerful, isn't it? Very contemporary. Verse 14 to 16. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up, his spring shall be parched, it shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. What's he telling them? All of, all of their fears about death are about to come to pass. All of their fears are about to become reality. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the reality of the fear of death is taken away by Christ. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Those fears were taken away by Christ. But could you imagine all of your fears and all of your nightmares about death? All of your fears and nightmares about the grave actually becoming a reality without any hope? That's what he says is about to happen to them. He says their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, their pregnant women ripped open. The Bible says children are heritage of the Lord. But imagine your children and your grandchildren being taken away and killed. The image here is of judgment coming that will leave them without any kind of heritage and without any kind of future. And it's going to be bad enough that even pregnant women are going to be ripped open and babies in the womb killed in a savage way. That's the judgment coming. Fourthly, though, I want you to see 
One last call to come back to the Lord. One last call to come back to the Lord. He says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity except what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let them understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let them know them. Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Now, folks, as we have journeyed through Hosea, what have we seen? We've seen this repeated theme over and over and over again of what? Judgment. Judgment's come. And when judgment finally gets here, it's going to be swift, it's going to be severe, and nobody's going to be able to save you or deliver you. Chapter after chapter after chapter, that's the thing we've been witnessing. But you know, I'm, I'm glad tonight to be able to say this is not how the book closes. The book closes with a glorious promise of restoration. I think in some ways you can find parallels, thematically at least, to the book of Revelation. Think with me a minute about the book of Revelation. From chapter 6 to 19 in the book of Revelation, what do you read about? Judgments. Yes. There are seals that are broken, one by one, each seal as it's broken, revealing a new judgment. Then there's bowls that are poured out, again, one by one, telling about God's wrath and judgment being poured out, and trumpets being blown, with judgment following each and every one of the blasts. But the book of Revelation doesn't end with judgment. It ends with restoration, the restoration of God's people in a total and complete way. Folks, the final two chapters of the book of Revelation are some of the most beautiful and encouraging chapters in all of the Bible. Hosea is similar in its flow in this regard. We've seen judgment after judgment. If we 
closed our study at the end of chapter 13, we might all want to go home and call our doctor up and ask for a dose of Prozac or something, right? <laughs> we understand the judgment. It's not like it wasn't deserved because it was. And it's not like it doesn't apply to us because it does. You know, somebody has said that man's heart is kind of like an idol factory. Our hearts are kind of like idol factories, churning out different idols. We're idolaters too. We've sinned. But we certainly don't want to see the curtain closed on this note. And joyfully, it's not closed on that note. As we saw with Hosea and Gomer, Hosea went and bought Gomer back despite all of her years of infidelity. Because of Hosea, Gomer had a future and a hope. And it's the same with God's people. God's people are like Gomer. They wandered. They've been unfaithful to God time and time again. God has been like Hosea. He is faithful. Yes, he judges and disciplines his people. He corrects them. But in the final analysis, he restores them. Now, you'll notice, however, that, that to experience this, what's he say in chapter 14, his people have to do? They have to truly repent and come back to him. And in returning to him, I want you to notice there is confession of sin that they've got to make and that's talked about at the opening of chapter 14. And not only confession of sin, but there's the recognition that Assyria can't save them. They've trusted in alliances with other nations to be their security, but these other nations have instead devoured them. And, and so they come to realize that everything they've been trusting in other than God has utterly and completely failed them. All of their idols that they've served have let them down. They've learned the hard way that their idols are dead idols. And God's discipline is that, that's what gets them to this point, that they learn all of this. And instead of the fake repentance that we saw back in chapter 6, in chapter 14, it's a genuine repentance. And because of this genuine repentance, what does God say he's going to do? He's going to forgive them, he's going to wash them clean, and he's going to restore them. God says that his blessing on them will reestablish them in their land, and he uses images from agriculture to show how they're, when they're reestablished in the land, They'll be like plants sending their roots down deep and wide. Specifically, he talks about cedar trees. Cedar trees are long-lived and they're disease-resistant and they have a pleasant fragrance. And he compares them to olive trees, which again are long-lived. When Connie and I were over in Israel in the Garden of Gethsemane, they showed us olive trees that are believed to have been there when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And those trees are still there. Cedar trees and olive trees. Long-lived uh, trees. 
And so God is talking here in chapter 14 about their restoration in terms of being like things that are going to last and have strength. And then he says in chapter 14 too that their roots are going to spread. That's, that's an image of what? Growing influence and stability. And so what do we see here? The discipline he's going to do is going to achieve its purpose. After the exile of Judah, specifically idolatry was turned away from. When they came back from 70 years in Babylon, you know what they put a death to? For the most part, they put a death to idolatry. They didn't love idolatry anymore. It cured them. When they, when they were buried knee-deep in a land, a land that all it had was idols. They got so sick and tired of it. When they came back, they turned away from idolatry. He says in verse 8 that Ephraim says no to idolatry. What, probably what is meant here is that after the exile, when Judah returns for all practical purposes, Judah is Israel now when they return. Because remember, the Assyrians destroyed Israel. So Judah, when they come back from Babylon, they will be Israel. They will essentially be Ephraim. And the people in the long run are going to realize that all of God's ways have been right. And they're going to desire to walk in God's way. And so again, Hosea ends on this wonderful note of restoration and hope. Now, we know what happens. We know that God will continue to be with his people when they come back from exile. And through the line of Judah, what's going to happen? The Messiah is going to arrive. Yes. But once again, what are they going to do? They're going to reject their Messiah. And they're going to go through a long period of drought, so to speak. But we know how things end. God is going to preserve a remnant among his people who will come to him, and they, along with Gentiles, will enjoy the everlasting future that God has for his people when the presence of sin is removed once and for all. In the Messiah, God deals with the penalty of sin. But there's coming a day when the presence of sin will be no more. And that's the ultimate end for God's people. So what we've learned through it all is just like Hosea with Gomer, God never, ever, ever gives up on his people. Let me repeat that. God never, ever, ever gives up on his people. Amen? Amen? Think about that statement as we close out this book. God never gives up on his people. He pursues them, he disciplines them and cleanses them, and he restores them. He is faithful even when we're not. And I'm glad the book ends that way. And there's some takeaway lessons here. Number one, 
there is the tendency with God's people to begin their journey of faith with zeal and faithfulness, but then to cool off. There's the tendency with God's people to begin their journey of faith with zeal and faithfulness, but then to cool off. Secondly, when God's people cool in their relationship with Him, they often turn to other things that become idols. Third, whatever God's people turn to in place of God cannot help, deliver, or satisfy. Whatever God's people turn to in place of God cannot help, deliver, or satisfy. Number four, God will do whatever it takes to restore those who are truly His. <coughs> Lastly, discipline for the moment is painful but God has blessed things in store for His people in the end. Did I go too fast for you? Did you get them all? Get them all? Raise your hand. First, is it your first time that you've studied through the book of Hosea? New to a lot of them. Again, judgment, 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 judgment. Hope. Hope and restoration. 